Could small acts of service change a city? Could the prayers of the few impact the eternity of the many? Could it? Oh, yes. Absolutely. But how? And what would it take to make that happen? How could we offer that kind of impact and influence and love to the city where God has put us? Well, the answer to that question is found in a passage of Scripture that I want us to consider this morning from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. And we're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 through 14. You'll find Jeremiah 29 on page 656 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, please feel free to take the uh, copy that's in the pouch in front of you. Uh, Put your name in it, take it home, and receive it as a gift from Windsor Road. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 14. This Old Testament book tells about the life and times of the prophet Jeremiah, who lived 600 years before Christ. And the times were tumultuous times. The Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, invaded Israel, captured Jerusalem, and destroyed the city and the temple six centuries before Christ. Many were killed. The best and the brightest of Israel were taken to Babylon as exiles. And the poor and defenseless and powerless were left behind. And Jeremiah the prophet remained among the ruins there in what was left of Jerusalem. And by, by way of point of reference, Jeremiah at this time in history is in Jerusalem. He's in the ruins of Judea. The prophet Ezekiel, though, he's in Babylon with the exiles. Okay, And then Daniel is also in Babylon as well. So... And those exiled in Babylon found themselves in a strange land with strange people because the Hebrew exiles were not the only exiles there in Babylon. The way Babylon would expand its empire would be to conquer a people group and then just take the cream of the crop and bring them back to Babylon. So it was a very multicultural, diverse city. And those exiled found themselves in this strange city with strange people. And they're asking two questions. Question number one, where is God? Where is God? Question number two is, what now? What now? Well, the answer to the first question is, I'm here, God says. I'm here in Babylon. I was there in Jerusalem, I'm here in Babylon. And the answer to the second question is, I want you to love the city where I put you. That's what I want. I want you to love the city where you are at this time in your life. And verses 1 through 14 explain what that love looks like. And so, follow along with me as I read Jeremiah 29 verses 1 through 14. These are are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem 
to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. So you see, Nebuchadnezzar took the cream of the crop, made them exiles in Babylon. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So there's still official correspondence going on between Jerusalem and Babylon, and official couriers would take these messages back and forth. And this letter that God had told Jeremiah to write was included in those dispatches to the exiles in Babylon. The letter said, verse 4, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So you see there are other voices uh, that are telling God's people in Jerusalem that, you know, you're just going to be there two years. Just going to be there two years. So don't. Don't worry. Don't invest yourself. You'll be back. You'll be back. God told Jeremiah to tell those exiles, it's not going to be two years. Verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is God's word. God's message to his people then and now is this. You know, I've called you to love the city where I've put you, and if you want to show love to the city where I've put you, the way to do that 
is to invest your life in that city. If you, the way you influence, the way you impact, the way you affect your city, the way you love your city is to invest yourself in the city. If you want to influence, you've got to invest. And that's our big idea here. To, to love our city for Christ, we need to invest ourselves in the name of Christ. Think of it this way. There's a thousand of us here this morning at Windsor Road. We live in a community of over 100,000. So how can the 1% influence the 99%? Don't tell me it can't be done. These verses tell us how it can be done. But before we figure out what we need to do, we need to figure out who we are, who God says we are. And these verses tell us who God says we are. These verses give us three identities, three self-understandings, which absolutely need to be ingrained into our souls for us to show the kind of love that God wants us to show in our community. Loving our city requires us to be residents, missionaries, and visionaries. These verses teach us a divine perspective, a divine calling, and a divine future. The divine perspective of a culture-enhancing resident. The divine calling of a mercy-giving missionary. And the divine future of a hope-driven visionary. God says, I want you to live as residents I want you to love as missionaries, and I want you to lead as visionaries. So let's consider each of these identities, the first being a culture-enhancing resident. Now look at verse 1. Verse 1 says that Nebuchadnezzar had taken Israel into exile. This is a devastating verse uh, to the Hebrew people because it's as if the entire history of Israel reversed itself. Uh, since Genesis chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel, Babel, Babylon, there had been a scattering of the nations. And then in Genesis 12, there's the call of Abraham and the birth of the Hebrew people. But here, the Hebrews have been brought back to Babylon and they're asking questions like, what's going on here? Where is God? Where's the God of Abraham? The God of Isaac? Where's the God of Moses and the Exodus? Where is the God of the Red Sea? Where's the God of Joshua and the conquest? Where's the God of King David? Where is God in my mess? I mean, does God have anything to say to a defeated disgraced, dislocated, and despairing people? And the answer is yes. Verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Behind this pagan Babylonian king is enthroned the sovereign God who says in no uncertain terms that Nebuchadnezzar is my servant doing my bidding. God insists to his people, you are in Babylon because I have put you in Babylon. And I want you to help Babylon flourish, even if that's not where you want to be. I heart see you, 
Champaign-Urbana is a wonderful community. Uh, it truly is. I love our community. I've lived here longer than I've lived in my hometown. And, you know, I understand that some of us may be here against our wishes. You know, for some of us, the U of I was not the school of choice. Uh, for some of us, Champaign-Urbana is not our community of choice. Some of us may feel stuck, you know, I'm stuck. I'm stuck in the soybeans. <laughs> and you're wondering, how in the world can I love a city when I feel stuck? See, how, how can that happen? And frankly, it's a matter of perspective. It really is. You can either identify as a refugee or you can identify as a resident. And some, I, some choose to identify as refugees, right? Refugees. I'm not here long term, so I'm not going to invest my life or my energies or my relationships or my skills or my talents. I'm just going to do what I need to do to bide my time until my time is up. So, so don't expect me to take risks and expend effort with people that I don't even like in a place where I have no future. See, that's a refugee perspective. It really is. Stay on the sidelines, bide your time, and then get out, right? God has a better idea. The divine perspective of a resident. That's what's behind verses 5 and 6. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. We're talking about grandchildren here. Multiply there and do not decrease. What's God saying? He's saying, you're not camping. Babylon is not a KOA campground. This is a residential relocation. Put some roots down, get yourself a mortgage, start a garden, learn what grows, get used to the climate, raise your family, you're going to be here for a while. To be a resident means to immerse yourself in the ordinary. See, all of these residential activities in verses 5 and 6, they're, they're ordinary, right? I mean, there's nothing extraordinary about gardening or maintaining a house. It's day by day, moment by moment. It's plain. It's often mundane. Get up, walk the dog, feed the dog, take out the garbage, make breakfast, load the dishwasher, unload the dishwasher, pay the bills, go to class, take notes, do your homework, write your paper, immerse yourself in the ordinary. Question, do you have what it takes to be ordinary? Michael Horton is a theologian, uh, an author, and he has written an extraordinary book titled, Ordinary. Ordinary, Horton writes, has to be one of the loneliest words in the dictionary. I mean, who, who wants a bumper sticker that announces to the neighborhood, my child is an ordinary student at Westview Elementary? Well, who wants that? Who wants to be that ordinary person living in an ordinary town as a member of an ordinary church with an ordinary pastor who has ordinary friends who works an ordinary job, right? Oh, no, man. I mean, glory-seeking Americans, you know, superpower-loving Americans. We, we want our lives to count. You know, we've got to leave our mark. We've got to have a legacy. We've got to make a difference. 
And, and of course, all of this needs to be something that's, you know, can be managed and measured and maintained and because we have to live up to our Facebook profile, right? It's, it's, it's one of the newer versions of salvation by works. Hmm. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. We need to make peace with this. Dramatic, life-altering moments come only a few times during our lifetime. That's why they're dramatic. Really, when you think about it, you're going to make three, maybe four major life-altering decisions in your life. Yeah. That's right. Did I tell you how much I've missed you? <laughs> the, <laughs> uh, the rest of our life, the rest of our life, apart from these few dramatic life-altering moments, the rest of our life is, is ordinary, common, mundane. It, it, but here's the truth. And this is good truth. If God doesn't rule your ordinary, then he doesn't rule you because that's where you live. And these verses tell God's people to, you know, put aside your fear of a better option or your fear of missing out and live in the city. Now, you know, don't assimilate. Don't become Babylonian. And don't separate yourself off. Okay? Don't assimilate, don't separate. Rather, use your distinctives to serve the city. That's how God says we can love our community. Verse 6 says, multiply there. That's Genesis language. Be fruitful and multiply. And I think someone who took this to heart was Daniel. It's very likely that Daniel would have heard this letter from Jeremiah, along with his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel spent his college-age years through his death in Babylon. He was born in, uh, in Israel, but he was a part of the exiles. And he, as far as we know, never went back home. From college age through his death, he lived in Babylon. He served a godless pagan government day by day, moment by moment, investing his life as a resident, not a refugee. So question, what would it look like right now for you to multiply where you are? What would it look like for you to live as a resident, to immerse yourself in the ordinary? Who needs your gifts? Where have you been holding back? Eugene Peterson uh, is a uh, pastor, and he actually gave us the uh, paraphrase, the message. And he wrote on the book of Jeremiah, listen to what he says about these verses. Will I focus my attention on what's wrong with the world and feel sorry for myself? Or am I going to focus my energies on how I can live at my best in the place where I find myself? All of us all of us are given moments or days or months or years of what feels like exile. Now, what are we going to do with them? 
Are we just going to wish we were someplace else? Are we going to gripe? Are we going to complain? Are we going to escape into fantasies? Or are we going to build and plant and marry and seek the shalom of the city? And then Eugene Peterson says this. This is so important. Far more important than the climate of this place or the economics of this place or the neighbors of this place is the God of this place. God is here with me. He's not just the God of Jerusalem. He's the God of Babylon. Babylon is God's Babylon. And what I'm experiencing right now is ground that was created by God and with people whom God loves. God loves Babylonians. And it's just as possible to live out the will of God in Babylon as any place else. But only if we adopt the mindset of this culture-enhancing resident, you see. But therein lies a problem, you know. Because we want to be a resident, but, well, that takes us to the second identity that God calls us toward. God moves us from the divine perspective of a culture-enhancing resident to the divine calling of a mercy-giving missionary. You see, God's people came to Babylon broken and somewhat bitter. And Psalm 137 tells us about that. Psalm 137 tells us the mood of the exiles when they first arrived in the city of Babylon. Psalm 137 verse 1 says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Do you hear the grief there? And then their grief becomes humiliation. Verse 3, For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. See, they're mocking them. Their grief turns into humiliation. And then in verses 8 and 9, it turns into outright anger and bitterness. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Verse 9, blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. End of psalm. You know what I love about the Bible is it's raw honesty. I mean, the Babylonians invaded their homes and raped their women and took their possessions, killed their husbands and murdered their children and destroyed their holy temple. Of course, of course they're broken and of course they're angry. And God hears them and God acknowledges this. That's why Psalm 137 is part of inspired scripture. And in addition to that, God says to his people in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7, I want you to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And God's people could hardly muster the strength to pray to him while in Babylon. Here in verse 7, God wants his people to pray for Babylon. 
seek the welfare, seek the shalom, seek the peace of Babylon, your enemy. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 44? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You are on a mission of mercy. I've sent you there for that. So to love our city, we must possess an unoffendable spirit, a mercy-giving spirit. When we enter any room in our city, God says, I want you to bring peace with you. Even if it's a room belonging to your enemies. Bring peace with you. And, and you know, that's the challenge for us, isn't it? Isn't it? In any conflict or difficult situation, you know, whenever we're at odds with someone, you know, our minds just quickly go to, you know, this. We draw a little diagram here. I've got it up for you. Whose fault is it? And we just play that over in our mind, right? We do. We do. And Inevitably, we pass over our fault, we overlook it, or we minimize it, we try to rationalize it, we, we, or we'll, we'll say something like, well, you know, I may be part of the problem, but they're more part of the problem. See? But here's the deal. <laughs> if you fail to deal with your fault... If you fail to deal with your part of the problem, if you fail to own it, if you fail to admit it, if you fail to confess it, then you, you will simply smuggle your hurt and your issues and your brokenness into the future. And you'll just repeat that future over and over and over and over. God's people are in Babylon because after multiple warnings, God in anguish finally sent his people in exile and Jeremiah 5:19 explains it when your people say why has the lord our god done all these things to us you shall say to them as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land so you shall serve foreigners in a land that is not yours. If you want to run after foreign gods, I'm just going to put you in their land. And he did. You need to own that, God says to his people. And you know, we need to own our junk. We need to own that and admit that. And until we own our part, we will not be able to forgive others of their part. If, if, until we own the blue, we're not going to be able to forgive the orange. Someone once said that forgiveness lets us leverage the lessons of the past without lugging around the baggage of the past. Earlier this year, uh, Dr. Robert Smith Jr. preached at this pulpit, and he told of how his 34-year-old son was murdered. And uh, Robert Smith wrote his son's murderer, and it was a letter of forgiveness. I forgive you, he wrote. And, and here's an update. So the young man wrote back, thank you for forgiving me. Uh, can you keep praying for me too? And Brother Robert Smith Jr. Uh, wrote these words. He said, you know, in this whole process, the Lord has let me see what it took for him to forgive me. He let me see what a mess I was. He let me understand that when he forgives, he forgives unconditionally. 
And he wants me to understand that if you ever want to get beyond the hurt, you've got to forgive. And you can't do that on your own. Brother Smith writes, I want to go up and I want to tell my son's murderer about Jesus. And I want to let him know that I love him. And I want this young man and my son to hug one another together in heaven one day. Because forgiveness is not difficult. Forgiveness is impossible without God. Who is it that God wants you to go see in order to extend forgiveness? Who is it? And, and how many days are you going to let pass by before you decide to forgive? How many, how many more days? Who needs your mercy today? Who needs your mercy today? It's a divine calling. The divine perspective of residency, the divine calling of mercy-giving missionaries, and, and this passage concludes with a divine future. A hope-driven visionary. Verse 11 says, I know the plans that I have for you. Literally, the plans I have planned for you. God says, I have a life for you. I'm not going to use the past against you. I want us to start over. I have plans for peace. That's the word shalom. And shalom is more than just the absence of conflict. Shalom is order and harmony and flourishing on all its dimensions. So shalom is a city that flourishes. Shalom has the fruit of neighborliness and shoving your, uh, shoveling your neighbor's driveways and sidewalks in, in the winter and planting trees in the spring and feeding the poor and being a positive influence and sitting by that extra grace required person in the lunchroom. God's shalom is so powerful that it changes our hearts and it makes us want God. It makes us seek God. It makes us desire God. And that's what's behind verses 13 and 14. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. That's not to say that God is playing some hide and seek game with God's people. No. My shalom is going to overwhelm your life and flood you. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes. I will gather you from all nations and all places where I've driven you. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Truly, the best is yet to come. And that's a promise that can change your mindset and perspective from doing time to, no, this is God's appointed time for me here. I accept that. I'm at peace with that. I'm at shalom with that. And it's a shalom, it's a shalom that helps us see the beauty where we are. Because there is beauty in Babylon if we will look. There's, there's beauty in them that are soybeans. Are our eyes open to see? To see Babylonians the way God sees them. In other words, God is saying to his people, I want you to start living now the way you're going to live when you get back home. I want you to live as if the exile is already over. Listen, listen. The point of Christianity is not to get to heaven after you die. It's to get to heaven before you die. And that's how we love our city. But bringing our 
bringing heaven to this city. And, and you, you're the presence of heaven. You're the presence of the kingdom of God. So if you want to influence, you've got to accept these identities that God has given us. And there are other voices, as chapters 28 and 29 are so clear to say. There are other voices. You're going to have to choose who you're going to listen to. You must invest yourself as a culture-enhancing resident, a mercy-giving missionary, and a hope-driven visionary. That's what you need to do. Our band is going to come up on stage here and sing a song that uh, has been written for this series. It's a beautiful song. Um, but while they're doing that, I just, I just need to tell you all, I've been trying to figure out how to talk to you about this um, so that you kind of know what's been going on in, in my heart here these past uh, seven days. Um, so, you know, last Sunday um, was my last Sunday away from you all, and I was just thinking to myself, okay, I'm kind of ready to hit the ground running on Monday and get things ramped up so that we can get this series launched and, and be ready to go. And... Um, that's what I had in mind. <laughs> um, last Sunday morning at uh, 5 a.m., my phone went off. And so my father in Tulsa uh, had to be taken to the hospital uh, for just a massive infection that had attacked his body. And uh, it was one of those, it could go one way or the other uh, infections. And so... Um, my folks split up 25 years ago, and they've since reconciled just on a friendship level. So all of my family's in Tulsa. Um, so my brothers were at the emergency room, and my stepmom was at the emergency room, and my mom came to the emergency room to really just pray for my dad and support. Um, so while my mom was at the emergency room, my brother says to my mom, Mom, you're, you're, you know, one side of your face is drooping. And your, your speech is slurred, you know? And so, um, well, the short of it is, both of my parents were hospitalized last week. And, um, and my younger brother uh, lost his job. And so my older brother has been managing this and said to me, I need you, I need you here. Um, so I got on a plane last Tuesday morning and was extending care to both mom and dad, give my brother a break, and I have a renewed appreciation for those of you um, who participate in that extraordinary ministry of ordinary, mundane, day-by-day -day care for those who cannot care for themselves. And um, I got back yesterday at four o'clock, and so um, I'm going to be on the plane Tuesday morning at 6 a.m., to go back. Um, things have improved. Uh, uh, both my parents were out of the hospital. My mom has improved at a quicker pace than uh, my father. Um, but I've had to think about these identities here in my life. Um, God, how can I just reside in the ordinariness? How can I do that, Lord? Help me, help me to do that in a way that will enhance the culture of our family. And uh, 
Lord, help me to extend mercy and grace as one sent by you to the people you want me to love right now. Um, Because like your family, I got a lot of junk in my family. And it requires much mercy. With the promise, with the promise that because we are in Christ, there is hope for the future. There is hope for the future. And then when it comes to sickness and the brokenness of our bodies, you know, uh, if we are healed, we get better. If we're not healed, we really get better because of new life in the new heavens and the new earth. Culture-enhancing resident, mercy-giving missionary, hope-driven visionary. And then I think about how Jesus embodied each of these identities because, you know, he could have simply appeared, you know, at 30 to just begin his ministry, but no, he was born in a small, ordinary village. And for 30 years, he resided in Nazareth. He went to school, learned his father's trade, attended synagogue. He was known by his neighbors. He was the oldest of at least six children. It was an ordinary life. But then he responded to his calling To the mission that God gave him, for God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son. And it was a mission of mercy giving, which took him to the cross to die for the sins, which caused our exile so that we could have hope and shalom and a future. And because of Christ, I can afford to live and serve and bring peace here and now because I trust the promises of God. The God who lived, who died, who rose, who ascended, who is seated at the right hand of God the Father. This same Jesus has now sent his Holy Spirit to reside in us. So there really is no ordinary thing you do because it is empowered by the Spirit toward an extraordinary future to give mercy, to to share this most valuable treasure of Christ in you, the hope of glory. So, so in the Spirit's power, this church can be a part of our city's peace. In the Spirit's peace, this church can be a part of racial reconciliation. In the Spirit's wisdom, this church can help the leadership challenges in our community and in our university. We can help the homeless and the powerless and the voiceless. And those without wisdom, because we belong to the city of God, brought about by God himself. And that's why I believe that the finest professors and the most excellent accountants and educators, the most responsible realtors, the best medical care providers, engineers, homemakers, sales executives, firefighters, police officers, and military personnel, the finest of these ought to come from Windsor Road Christian Church because we are a part of the city of God, a city within the city. Jesus loves our city, and we do too. (laughs) Hebrews 11.16 says, Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. 
So I've got one more question, and then I'm going to pray. What will make people in your neighborhood be glad you are there? 